Welcome to Trinity on Tap Theology, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Victoria Lorimar. Episode 6, 3 in 1, His Only Son, Our Lord. In referring to Jesus as Lord here, we're acknowledging his divinity. Jesus is not just a prophet or messenger of God, he is God. And we're so used to the idea of the Trinity now, and it's mind-bending maths, God is three in one, that perhaps we lose sight of how extraordinary this theological commitment is. So how did this idea come about? Really, we need to go back to the early church again, like we did last episode for the understanding of Jesus, and consider how Christians in those first few centuries grappled with the legacy of Christ and the writings that became our Bible. Fundamentally, Christians are monotheists, worshipping one God, the God of Israel. The famous Shema text from Deuteronomy declares, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. These early Christians were committed to the one God. But at the same time, the New Testament testifies to the Lordship of Christ. Jesus says, Those who have seen me have seen the Father. And we'll get to the Holy Spirit later, but Jesus had promised the Spirit, which he spoke of in personal terms, and since Pentecost, it was part of the church's felt experience of God. And we know that there was a distinction between God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit very early on from New Testament Trinitarian formulations, such as the one found in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So how to make sense of God being one, but Jesus and the Spirit being God as well as the Father? A lot of the disputes in the early church and the development of creeds can be boiled down to different attempts to understand this crucial question. For example, the divinity of Jesus was settled at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. A North African church leader called Arius had been arguing that the Son did not share the divine nature of God the Father, and that there was a time when the Son was not. In his view, the Son was the firstborn of all creation, but still a creature rather than God. Of course, this is not what Christians believe about the Son. The prologue to the Gospel of John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Son of God, also known as the second person of the Trinity, is God and is eternal because God is eternal. Being eternal is a property of being God, full stop, not just God the Father. So the main defender of this orthodox claim against Arius was an Egyptian bishop called Athanasius, who is today recognised as one of the fathers of the church. The Council of Nicaea ruled in his favour and this understanding of the Son of God thus became doctrine. A similar process led to the divinity of the Holy Spirit being affirmed at the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. So with the conviction that Jesus and the Holy Spirit were both God as well as the Father, yet there is only one God, the doctrine of the Trinity developed as an attempt to explain how this is the case. Incidentally, you might have heard claims that the Trinity is an unbiblical idea, that it was invented later. Certainly the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, 
But the doctrine itself is based on the witness of Scripture to the one God who is identified as Father, Son, and Spirit. So with this background in place, let's dive into the doctrine of the Trinity itself. You're likely accustomed to referring to God as Trinity, to speaking of God as three in one, particularly in the songs sung at church, perhaps. But what does that mean? Three what? One what? Here is where we need to get into some specific terminology. Two terms in particular, and I'm going to lay some Greek on you here. Usia and hypostasis. Usia roughly translates as essence. It's the stuff something is made of, whether material or immaterial. Our usia is the very core of our being. Hypostasis mostly gets translated as person, but its real meaning is something more along the lines of a centre of consciousness uh, or an independent reality. It's fine to use the word person, though, but we have to remember that when we speak of persons in relation to God, it's not exactly the same as what we mean when we describe a human person. So God is one usia, one essence, but three hypostases, three persons. The three hypostases, Father, Son, and Spirit, all share the one usia. They have the same nature, will, etc., even though they each have some unique properties and activities. In affirming a correct understanding of the Trinity, we walk a bit of a tightrope between two heresies, if we emphasise the threeness too much, we fall into the danger of tritheism, viewing the Father, Son and Spirit as three gods. But if we focus too much on the oneness, we can stray into a different heresy called modalism, which just sees the Father, Son and Spirit as three differently revealed modes of the one God, rather than acknowledging their distinct personhood. There are some parallels here to understanding how Christ can be both human and divine at the same time. Whereas the triune God is one essence, divine, in three persons, Jesus Christ is one person with two essences, divine and human. Confused? Well, theologians aren't the only ones who have to contend with mystery and apparent paradox. Physicists, for example hold that light is both a wave and a particle simultaneously, although it cannot logically be both. William Lawrence Bragg quipped, God runs electromagnetics on Monday, Wednesday and Friday by the wave theory, and the devil runs them by quantum theory on Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday. And of course he's being flippant, but the point is that we're accustomed to holding together ideas that are a bit challenging, and we can accept paradoxes where necessary. So why is it necessary to affirm the triune nature of God? Can't we just focus on the one God? What does the doctrine of the Trinity mean for our theological understanding? Well, let me mention just a few central aspects of Christian thought that depend upon an ongoing commitment to the doctrine of the Trinity. Firstly, God is love. Love as a term is relational. The triune nature of God explains how we can view love as the eternal essence of God. Every other doctrine we might explore, grace, mercy, judgment, salvation, all of these build on this foundational claim that God is love. As we're created in God's image, this reminds us that we're created for community. 
And acknowledging that God's very nature is love helps us to see that God doesn't need to create. We can understand creation as entirely an act of grace rather than fulfilling any need of God's for a relationship. An understanding of the Trinity also helps us when we pray. Who do we address in prayer? While Jesus instructed us to pray to the Father, who is the ground and source of our creation and salvation and of every good gift, there are also times when it's appropriate to address the Son or the Spirit. We can thank the Son for his work on our behalf and pray for his return. We can ask the Spirit to intercede when we can't find the words. We can petition the Spirit's work in the world. Knowing that God is triune may enrich our prayer life. And similarly, a knowledge of the Trinity makes sense of the way we worship. We also depend on an understanding of the Trinity for a proper understanding of the Church. We often refer to the Church as the body of Christ, which is entirely appropriate and scriptural. But the relationality of the Trinity expresses the communal aspect of faith as well. We baptise members into the Church in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So this is central to our identity as the community of the faithful. A knowledge of the history of Trinitarian debates gives us insight into some of the schisms and divisions in the wider church today. This can help us as we work towards church unity. And as we see the Trinity is at work in the world and in salvation history, we come to know the triune God as a missionary God. So Trinitarian thought should also inform the way we think about mission as church. The importance of understanding the Trinity properly becomes even clearer if we consider instances where it gets used wrongly. For example, a small number of theologians, in particular church traditions, have drawn parallels between how the persons of the Trinity relate to one another and how men and women should relate to one another. They argue for a position called subordinationism, which places God the Father in charge of the Son and the Spirit. It's a hierarchical model of the Trinity, which has been used to support a similar headship model in terms of gender, with men having authority over women in the church. This is bad theology for a couple of reasons. First, it makes the mistake of projecting the obedience of Jesus, God incarnate, onto God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who is properly affirmed as co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. It's not a hierarchical relationship, but one of equals. We should understand the obedience of Jesus as appropriate to his human nature and circumstances. It's a voluntary and temporary subordination. Think of that great Christ hymn in Philippians 2, which speaks of Jesus humbling himself in the incarnation. At most, Jesus' obedience reflects the humility of the triune God. It does not indicate an internal power structure. Second, it's not a great move to use speculation about the inner workings of God as the foundation for how humans ought to relate to one another. There are much better starting points for thinking about humanity. God is very far removed from us, And even our understanding of what it means to be created in God's image has its limitations, as we discussed in episode four. The Trinity has very little to do with gender debates in the church, except perhaps as we consider the language we use for God, as we discussed in episode three. Even then, we remember that God does not have gender. Gender is a human property, not a divine one. Before we finish, let's return to this line in the creed. 
We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Referring to Jesus as the Son not only identifies him as the second person of the Trinity, but it echoes God's promise in Psalm 2. This clause doesn't just invoke the idea of a triune God, but it also invokes the fulfilment of the hope of Israel. Because Lord isn't just an honorary salutation, it's an imperial title. When we say our Lord in the creed, we're declaring ourselves as among those who recognise Jesus' sovereignty, which extends over all creation, not just those who hail him as Lord. N.T. Wright points out as well that in the ancient world, saying Jesus is Lord also means saying that Caesar is not. It's a pretty powerful political statement. In fact, even before the New Testament era, Jews in the Roman Empire refused to call Caesar Lord, reserving that title for God alone. So addressing Jesus as Lord was an acknowledgement of his divinity. In the hierarchical society of the New Testament world, the heralding of Jesus as Lord was revolutionary in social terms as well. It dissolved all of the other barriers, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, slaves, slave owners, all were equal under the Lordship of Christ. Now, the idea of lordship can come with some extra baggage if we aren't careful. After centuries of Christendom, where the church and the Christian faith have been inextricably bound up together with the state, with worldly power structures, we can lose sight of how countercultural and how egalitarian the claim of Jesus as Lord really is. In the same way that theological ideas can be misapplied to produce distorted thinking on gender, they can be used to prop up flawed models of power. Whenever we declare Jesus as Lord, we are witnessing to an upheaval, God entering human history to transform our ideas of authority and power, to extend an invitation that crosses all worldly boundaries into a radical new existence. We've mostly spent this episode talking about the Trinity. So as we close, I wonder how much the Trinitarian nature of God shapes your faith. Do you ever pray to a specific person of the Trinity? This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.